0: Welcome to No Hype, the podcast about truth, science, and the future of marketing, brought to you by your hosts, Allison Dietz
1: and Brett House.
0: Today on the podcast, we have Lou Pascalis, Chief Strategy Officer at AdFontest Media. Lou is a senior marketer with vast experience in digital, social, search, brand safety, consent, and compliance, and data strategy. Prior to that, Lou was the president and COO at MMA Global and was a senior vice president at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, running their enterprise customer engagement, media investment, and measurement capabilities. Lou's a strategy guru, and his expertise runs the gamut of marketing, measurement, and data strategy. Lou, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, awesome
0: So we thought we would start with just a little bit. I just came, ran through a very long background of your history, your, your expertise. It's a long history. It is, it is. In fact, we had to shorten it. So I think it's really, you know, shows the breadth of experience that you have. But what led you after such a successful career in the financial services industry, among all of the other big things that you've done in your career, what made you really decide to get into advisory roles and to really focus in on Advantest Media and the role that you have there today?
2: I've been very fortunate in my career, having worked with some amazing brands Uh, Bank America, before that, American Express, starting out at uh, Ernest and Julio Gallo. And in all of those roles, I had a central responsibility for communication strategy, media investment, and then there were other things added on. Um, And I was at a point in my career where I realized three things. One, I really enjoyed the aspect of um, teaching young people early in their career about how to think about where the puck was going, being a change agent, and wanted to find real fulfillment for this phase of my career. Quality news journalism had always been a passion of mine, and I did a lot of public speaking wherever and whenever I could about marketers' responsibility there. So that was really a big part of fulfillment. Working with a variety or a portfolio of companies, mostly in what I call the tech for good space, also adds to that fulfillment and allows me to keep my fingers on innovation. And then, you know, the work I'm doing with AdFontes Media to really help marketers discover the tremendous incremental value in news, in addition to what I think is their societal responsibility to support news, uh, is is really great. And I found many receptive audiences, including recently at your own TransUnion Brave New Worlds event in Chicago, which uh, I really enjoyed the opportunity to speak to your audience about, those very things. And I got some great feedback from that. And so this is a personal journey for me. It's, um, it's mission driven and it's a little different than, you know, sort of transactional role that media buyers typically, you know, have in their career.
0: How would you succinctly define that mission? What, what would you say were the words you would use to define that mission? I
2: think the best way to describe what I'm trying to do is open the eyes to marketers that their investment decisions have outsized influence on an ecosystem that has outside influences on society in general. And so when I talk about tech for good, I'm talking about companies that are transparent, companies that are accountable, companies that really take compliance seriously. And I am in the unexpected position where I'm now having, you know, really frankly, companies audition for me and say, this is how we fit your definition of tech for good. I think we have an imperative to make the digital ecosystem a place where not only people go to transact, but also feel safe in transacting. It's also very uh, alarming how misinformation travels rapidly in the digital ecosystem. I think there's an expression that's been around for a long time that a falsehood is around the world twice before the truth gets its shoes on. And, you know, we're seeing that today in a lot of places and spaces. And marketers' investments really can impact that. And if they're not doing the things that they do in other aspects of their business, ensuring customer safety, making sure that they're investing in companies that reflect their values, auditing where their media dollars are going to, ensuring, to ensure that they're, you know, supporting the kind of uh, platforms that are well-governed. My very first boss in this industry gave me a mantra, and I try to live by it every day, which is don't expect what you don't inspect. And unfortunately, too many marketers are too busy with other things, not realizing the importance of how their investments color the world. So that is a
1: very good segue. And Lou, uh, tremendous to have you on the podcast. Uh, Loved your presentation at Brave New Worlds this year. We've obviously uh, been talking a lot over the last few years. And I love the uh, sort of the mission that you're on. Uh, tech for good, but let's let's dive down, because I think what you just described is sort of the the beginnings of the thesis of this episode of No Hype, which is really the marketer's fundamental role in the future of news, right? Despite the perceived risks of advertising around, obviously what can be considered balkanized and frequently uh, controversial news content, um, you've made an argument both for the moral imperative, But importantly, especially for our audience, is the business imperative around investing in news. And I think you've made a pretty coherent and data-driven argument in in support of why it makes absolute business sense for marketers to reinvest, regardless of some of the brand safety challenges or concerns. Can you talk to the audience about that?
2: Yeah, I sure can. Let's start with a little bit of historical context. In a 15-year period ending at the dawn of the pandemic, so spring of 2020, advertisers investment in news was down 80%. As a result of that, according to the US Bureau of Labor Statistics, people working in newsrooms were down 50% in roughly the same period. So against that backdrop, there's a couple things happening, right? First of all, If you think about the role of quality news journalism, you know, journalists seek the truth. And while they don't always get it right, they're really wired to bring that truth forward. And let's face it, you know, um, at at the start of this decline, people were barely figuring out their mobile devices. They weren't, you know, really publishing content. Social media was a thing, but not a big thing. Streaming video, You know, it was a very small percentage of total content. Well, fast forward to now, and we have this world where everyone is a publisher, where you've got all sorts of different quality of information, and people are still reliant on news, particularly when you get into an election cycle. And yet, with this decline in advertising spend, news represents significant unduplicated reach now for the vast majority of advertisers. And having spent three decades buying media, I can tell you, you start with unduplicated reach. It might sound different. We might call it something different. We add other factors like engagement and out, you know, down funnel outcomes. But at the end of the day, you want to grow your business. You find new audiences that are in your target. And so news represents that for the vast majority of advertisers who have stepped back largely for brand suitability reasons. Brand suitability reasons where, let's face it, no brand wants to end up in the middle of the culture wars, and it's so easy to trigger audiences today that it's understandable that many of them initially backed away from news. Multiple studies have revealed, however, that uh, consumers, by and large, would prefer advertisers to remain in news, even against controversial content, even adjacent to controversial content, because they understand A, the intrinsic role that advertising plays there, and B, they actually desire this news. We're actually seeing an uptick in demand for news, particularly amongst Gen Z and millennials, which we anticipate will continue all the way through the election cycle and beyond. So now you have growing demand against a cohort of people who are hard to engage unless you're going to advertise in gaming or, you know, leveraging creators, which is another great strategy. Um, and you know, when you look at a study that we just, uh, did, uh, at Ad media, uh, the, you know, the demographics of news consumers are exactly what you would expect. They're 55% more likely to have a graduate degree in the household. Um, they're 26% more likely to own an iPhone. They're, um, 50% more likely to travel abroad for vacation. All of those things indicate consumers who have the discretionary means to buy things. So not only will your unduplicated reach go up, but your ROAS will go up if you add news back. So there is a very strong business case there. And I don't want to bore your audience, but I will say this, that uh, you you should probably be looking at your 2024 learning agenda. And frankly, your 2024 planning, and say, how can we add news back? And without turning this into an infomercial for Ad Media, we have capability to help you um, set parameters around what level of bias, because all news has some bias, it's, it's human nature, and what level of reliability reflect your values and would give comfort to your governance committee. And so it's safe to re-enter news, it's timely to re-enter news, and perhaps most importantly right now, because of the decline in demand for news, the actual cost to buy news inventory is very attractive according to uh, versus other categories and so the business case is overwhelming the concerns can be mitigated and are largely not real although i thought they were a few years ago but research says otherwise so this might be a big way to deliver growth to your enterprise and right now is the time to start considering it for 2024
0: so you brought up a really interesting point around unduplicated reach because there is a lot of conversation in the media industry right now around how best to define reach metrics, particularly in light of you know TV and and whatnot. So I, I you know it, it brings up a point in my mind of you know how do we how do we prove that value in terms of how do we define that unduplicated reach and how do we prove that and what research have you guys done to sort of prove out that unduplicated reach for from news in particular?
2: I think you actually need to define your audience segments. right way. Like I would define myself as a news junkie. I wake up with news. If the television sets in my apartment are not on a news channel, it's surprising. Um, And, you know, I, I think that there's a large cohort of news first audiences. You really have to look at that as an audience segment, determine how that matches up with your own business demand and then figure out contexts, too, that really make sense for you. Maybe, maybe there's some aspects of news you just don't want to run in. But a big problem that we have today, Allison, we've got two very large groups of advertisers. People who are sitting out of news entirely. They've just blocked it. I was talking to one of my other clients on Wednesday, and I was so disheartened by this very progressive in marketing company that they just don't want to go anywhere near news. And no matter what argument I've mounted, I couldn't shift them. But an even bigger problem is keyword blocking. Keyword blocking is something that I didn't really realize this until one of the, one of the studies we did about incrementality. Um, people block keywords once and never, ever, ever remove them from a list. I describe you know, the keyword list, the keyword blocking list, like a roach motel. Keywords check in, but they don't check out. And we have a little thing we do called the Hillary Clinton test. And invariably, this uh, this leads to some funny conversations. We ask marketers that we're working with, hey, is Hillary Clinton on your block list? And they're like, oh, I'm sure she's not. Yeah, almost always is. Because people don't actually go back. And so you've got this tremendous corpus of 10 years of keywords that have changed dramatically over time in terms of their importance or their relevance or their risk that marketers are not policing. And here's the, here's the interesting thing. And it's really pernicious made for advertising sites, which a recent ANA study revealed to be 21% of impressions delivered for the participants in the study, even though the plan was 0% of the inventory running on MFA's they actually craft content and look at the aggregate of these blocked keywords and they ensure that none of those words actually show up in articles. So when in a programmatic environment, you've got a Washington post article that, you know, because it's truthful uses some keywords that you're blocking on your endless keyword blocking list. And then you've got this made for advertising site, which is by definition, low quality, high ad to edit ratio and not a good user experience. And that doesn't have any of those keywords. And it's priced less expensively than the Washington Post site. And I'm picking the Washington Post illustratively. The, the NFA wins. So not only are you denying yourself the high quality audience that the Washington Post could give you, you're actually rewarding what is arguably a bottom feeder with some content which is dubious at best and a user experience which is terrible in search for cheap reach. And so what I would say is you know you really want to look at what kind of audience experience what is suitable and how important that would be to your 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 next best prospect and that's really how i think you define the audience
1: keyword blocking or ad blacklisting has kind of become the de facto probably inadvertently mechanism for news blocking is kind of what you just described right and you also mentioned that that news publishers you know, as a result of, of some of this move away from advertising and news content and obviously tied to, to keyword blocking have, um, moved towards a different content creation model to attract advertisers, which is largely based on lifestyle content versus sort of serious news or investigative news. So can you talk about that right
2: from? Yeah, that, that is a real issue, Brett. And, uh, You know, it's understandable. Right. On the one hand, you know, you need these publishers to stay in business and, you know, they have to give the audience what the audience wants. But particularly at a local level, this has resulted in a complete shift away from the kind of local news that, you know, ensures things like the state and local districts for elections are fair and balanced that they're not gerrymandered in such a way as to favor one party or another, one demographic or another. They ensure things that happen at the state house, the courthouse, the, the local zoning board, the local school district are transparent and people can see that. And you know, there's an extreme case um, where in Salinas, California, the local paper there, which was purchased by Gannett a few years ago no longer has anyone working in the local newsroom and they're just taking the national news and running it in the local paper. They have one local employee who's actually answering the phones there and she manages the obituary desk. So the only sign of life at the local Salinas paper is death. And I think that's a canary in a coal mine. I don't think they're unique and I don't mean to pick on Gannett, but you know, if, if we don't, recognize that communities thrive when there is a well-lit environment where people actually know what's going on and it's not happening behind a cloak of darkness, Um, we are all better off as a society because those local issues end up becoming regional issues and those regional issues become state issues, et cetera, et cetera. So I think part of the challenge here is to recognize that although advertisers seem to shy away from news there is a need to cover that local news as part of the public service of the platform. And I think it's going to be a combination of educating marketers that showing up in local news is perhaps almost more important than a national. Um, and then, you know, recognizing that there's got to be other ways, other economic modalities to ensure that local stories get covered.
1: I was at Gannett when a lot of that local news uh, acquisition consolidation happened, but when you replace the local news with kind of an aggregate feed that's that's kind of vanilla uh, national news that has an impact to your point at the at the local level they're not getting the information that's relevant to their communities um, because of really an efficiency argument right how can we most efficiently deliver content at the largest scale across the most number of channels reaching the most number of people that's kind of the argument right it's it's a it's a profit over sort of people type of
2: argument from-, from yeah, and, and, and labor costs have gone up and quality journalists don't work cheaply. And, you know, it's understandable. Um, and, and, you know, even though I said earlier on that demand for news is growing, um, you know, that local demand has, you know, waned. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a concern that is, I think, multifaceted. We're busier than ever before we want content that's, you know, hard hitting and faster. And, you know, you notice now whenever you, you know, whenever you dive into an article, it says two minute read, three minute read, four minute read, you're reassuring people that we're keeping this short. But I will say to my friends in journalism, you know, whom I have great respect and hope for, they need to do more to innovate in that regard. I've seen very little innovation in news product. Uh, I, you know, I was recently a huge fan of the recount, which tried to put it all in video and made it funny and made it hard hitting. And, you know, that even that most marketers shied away for, but the demand was there. Right. And so we need to figure out new formats to keep that news in front of people.
0: So you were talking a second ago about, you know, how, how, um, how you end up with a choice between the Washington Post and other content. Do you believe that this rise in interest in attention metrics will help drive more help more marketers towards, you know, high-quality content that you can find in in places such as the news. I mean, I see that as being fairly engaging content with a strong attention metric tied to it versus something that's, you know, much less engaging and you're completely ignoring the advertising. So, do you think attention may help to drive advertisers back to the news?
2: I want to step back from that question and go to where you wanna go in order to set the context. And so, you know, most major Fortune 500 companies today have a robust ESG platform. They're doing everything from, you know, working on climate change um, very significantly to uh, ensuring that how they go to market reflects their diversity, equity, and inclusion goals to, in some cases, working on recidivism, which is the disproportional incarceration of minorities in our country, which is an enormous problem. And I think it's likely that quality news journalism is the next plank in their ESG portfolio. I've talked to many senior marketers and they understand that journalism ensures truth. Truth drives the economy from which they have benefited our democracy, from which they have benefited, and really society, which they have benefited. And, you know, if we don't have a common framework on truth, then how can we even, you know, talk about commerce, right? Um, Let alone agree on anything. So now what happens is there's a very big disconnect between the people at the senior most level of the enterprise who are talking about these things and very earnestly committed to these things. And folks that are managing programmatic media, which is where the lion's share of the dollars come out now for most of the digital platforms, who have been given a very performance-oriented goal and very little leeway.
1: Programmatic's what? Like 80% of, of display media?
2: Depend, yeah, d- well, of display for sure. And it's more than 50% of video now, and it's going to jump as CTV becomes programmatically bought. And, you know, I've said for years, Brett, you've heard me for years say this, that programmatic is the worst thing that ever happened to advertising and it's the best thing that ever happened to marketing. Because we've commoditized advertising, but we now have signal to understand audience intent if we actually use it to create more relevant messages. But right now, it's a race to the bottom, and I will debate anyone who argues with that. We are looking for the cheapest possible way to engage the most people in our target and get response from them. We don't optimize on DE&I. We don't optimize on um, sustainability. I give Brian O'Kelly at Scope 3 a lot of credit because he's got marketers talking about it. But again, he's got marketers at the top of the house talking about it.
1: And to your point, that programmatic platform is going to target that bottom feeder publisher if it's giving the audience reach that the the plan demands versus targeting Wall Street Journal. The programmatic platform, the AI Mm -hmm. algorithm doesn't care. Right. Right? It's like deliver reach is the KPI. I think
0: viewability was introduced as a way to start to drive and and – Ensure that there was engagement, but I don't think viewability solves the real issue of how engaged is the audience, and that's why I asked about attention because you know you're going to spend longer time reading a news article than you are on a you know five second video that you're swiping through. So I think that there is a fair amount of attention tied to news, and and maybe some of these newer metrics that are becoming more popularized can help to you know enable that journey.
2: Yeah, I agree with you, Alice, and I think that ultimately what you really are looking for the quality experience, right? Like um viewability is easily gained right that's exactly where mfas do really well because they only show you two sentences of an article and then there's an ad above it and an ad below it right you can't you know or if you've ever taken one of those polls where number 53 is really interesting and you have to click forward 52 times right that's 52 viewable ads so they're gaming that system engagement time spent quality of the environment Uh, quality of the content are all things that we don't have standardized metrics on yet. But I think more and more advertisers are asking those right questions. And I think we need to demand that we shift to that. It's a harder conversation inside the enterprise because you've got the procurement function and you've got the CFO's office. And both of them have been trained now by marketers about cheap reach. And we have to move that to quality reach. Reach still matters but it needs to be quality reach. And I think it's going to take a while before we have standards for that. But I think every marketer can start to experiment with that. That also should be on your learning agenda. How can we improve the, you know, the, the, the yield, not by getting you know, more Hamburger Helper, but actually buying more Hamburger? And that's the fundamental problem in programmatic right now. We're optimizing the Hamburger Helper when we should be optimizing the Hamburger, if you remember that from your youth on those Tuesday night budget night dinners that your mom made, at least my mom did. Um, it's it's a it's a conversation that needs to take place between the senior most part of the organization and those who are in the buying trenches thinking they're doing the right thing when in fact they're optimizing the wrong metric now.
1: Well, and do you think at a news organization, do you think that that changes, do they have to become more reliant on direct inventory purchases? You know, so they're, they're selling homepage takeovers, they're selling portions of the the inventory on the site, direct to client versus programmatically? Or do you think that this actually could be managed responsibly in a programmatic
2: way? I think there's a middle ground, which is a real PMP. A PMP, a private marketplace, which takes advantage of the programmatic ability to find the right audience in the right context at the right time for my priority message, where I can call up the head of revenue at the platform and say, hey, there's something wrong. where well, there is accountability. When it goes into the broader programmatic ecosystem, there are a lot of ills. And again, not to you know belabor the ANA programmatic transparency study, which everyone should download and read. The average participant in that study um, had 6,000 sites on their inclusion list. The average participant in that study ran on 144,000 sites. So they weren't running where they thought they were running and the inclusion lists were incredibly broken, incredibly, I'm sorry, 44,000 sites, not 144. They ran on 38,000 sites that they did not have a relationship with or were not on their inclusion list for some reason. So that's a problem. So I think what you want to do is identify 20 or 30 publishers, talk about the engagement metrics of choice, ask them what they can give you in terms of visibility on that, whether it's time spent scroll. Uh, you see a lot of those read more buttons, which is a great proxy for people actually continuing down the article. And and then do business with them where there's accountability. I think the problem with programmatic is, you know, is it the DSP's fault? Is it the SSP's fault? Is it the publisher's fault? Should I just blame my agency versus a private exchange where you can just go to that publisher and say, hey, we did X billion dollars worth of business last quarter. I'm going to pull it unless you fix these things. And that I think that's a good balance of how the marketplace works and how programmatic can benefit you from reaching the audience you really want to engage.
1: And, and how well penetrated do you think private exchanges are? I mean, it's the, the notion, yeah. the concept has been around for a long time and it's certainly been applied from a, on a publisher by publisher basis. But how well penetrated do you think that is uh, in the, let's say, the top 20, top 30 major uh, news publishers in the
2: country.
0: And, and what role does the agency have in kind of helping to enable that that a- environment?
2: My hypothesis is that 100% of the top 30 news platforms have a PMP model. Now, how is it policed? Um, how accountable is it? We did see in the, and I did participate in the ANA Programmatic Transparency Study, which is why I'm quoting from it so much. We did see PMPs, have situations where they were going to secondary and tertiary markets off platform, and mixing in other inventory. We used to call that audience extension back in the early 2000s. When
0: you That's know a marketer's uh,
2: term. <laughs> and audience extensions aren't good. Uh, yeah. Well, and is that specifically to fulfill on the 100 percent of the inventory? Yeah. Right? I mean, if I sell you 10 million impressions and I only have seven million, I don't want to hand you back money. I'm going to go into a secondary marketplace and get 80 cents on the dollar that I sent you, make an additional 20 cents, and say I filled. The role of the agency, Allison, comes right there. I need the agency to ensure that my terms are actually being executed, and the agency should say, "Hey, did you agree to you know audience extension? Because we don't see that in the terms and conditions here, um, you know." And so help monitor that. Um, I relied very heavily on my agency when I was at Bank of America for helping me identify best practice vendors, and you know we we had this I don't know thirty pages of Harvey balls on all the different considerations that you could possibly look at around trust and safety and viewability and verification and measurement and whatnot. But again, don't expect what you don't inspect. I think a lot of marketers are like, "Well, my agency's watching that."
1: Yeah. So did you shut down the audience audience extension play and most of your contractual arrangements, right? To say Because there's no there's no way you can police the 44,000 sites that are part of that audience extension, programmatic audience extension. Yeah. So you basically say, we're, we're shutting this down contractually. So we really only want these top X premium
2: publishers, yeah, we, period. We didn't have the data when I was at Bank of America that was so much was going out the back door. Now we had in our terms and conditions, you weren't supposed to do that. It was part of a long list of thou shalt nots, but I don't know that we policed it, to be honest with you. But moving forward, I think the big insight for me is marketers should move to only paying vendors on their inclusion list, regardless of circumstances. If you're not on my inclusion list and somebody went into a secondary or tertiary auction or whatever, I'm sorry, I'm not paying you. And it's going to take a year for contracts to get updated, for the industry to be shocked by that. But, you know, I I hate to say it in every other instance in my career here, until you shut off the money, the behavior continues one way or another. And I think we all thought that we were very clear that inclusion lists are the only companies that we should be doing business with. But it's been proven that that just isn't working today. So, Allison, I don't know if I really covered your question. Yeah. If you want to go through, no, it. I
0: think you did. I think that agencies help us help us in terms of policing, and I think that that's key. And it kind of brings me to another question that I was thinking about because you've talked a little bit about sort of incentives and internal organizational challenges. So, I'm curious about, you know, say I'm I'm a marketer. I decide that this is the path I want to take. You know, who are the right stakeholders? Who are the key stakeholders that you need to bring on board on your side, and how do you best do that? particularly you mentioned earlier, the CFO procurement, like how do we yeah. bring the right people into the, into the conversation to, to move things forward?
2: Yeah, this is, this is really the new role of, you know, the media lead, uh, the head of comms and media uh, inside a large organization, because it's an evangelical role and it's a role that requires constant maintenance and it's small conversations and large. And what I mean by that is, You know, you've got lines of business presidents who are effectively your internal clients when you're running a media organization and you need to engage with them and you need to have a different contract with them because, again, they have been trained to give you the minimum amount of money necessary for you to achieve the business objectives that drive their goals and their bonus. And too often you run into these legacy KPIs, which are on the scorecards, that these very senior leaders read out on, and they read out on them to the CFO and the CEO. And their annual bonuses are largely dependent on those KPIs, which are outdated. Numbers of landing on a page, cost per impression paid, things that don't really drive the relationship. And you need to, you know, you need to talk about digital differently now because coming from banking. What you're really trying to do in digital is replicate the experience that our parents and grandparents had when they would walk into a banking, a retail banking center. They'd walk up to a teller that they've known for 20 years, and that teller would say, hey, how was your vacation? Did your son get into school? How do you like the new Jeep? It's just natural human nature. We can do that in digital, and we can do that at great scale with great efficiency if we have the right permissions. And it's not creepy, and there's a whole other conversation there we won't get into but we need to start recognizing that KPIs like relevance, favorability, customer lifetime value, or if you're in the subscription business, ARPU, Average Revenue Per User, those are the metrics that matter. And they're a little bit more opaque than landings on a page or um, you know cost per impression. They require a little bit more finesse to get to an answer that everyone can live with but that's actually what drives shareholder value. It's not transactions this quarter, it's customer long-term value. And we too too often go after what Sir Martin would call uh, the the short-termism answer because of explainability. Sorry, yeah, yeah,
1: yep. and, and it, yeah, no, and, and that you you finished on a point that, that exactly that I was thinking about is you talked about explainability. It's harder to explain. You need some maybe some data science and math acumen. Uh, it's a little bit harder to to measure more qualitative metrics, but lifetime value has math behind it, right? Right. That is all. It's just a little bit harder to do than your simple reach or basic engagement metrics, right, on the, on the publisher side. So, um, you know, so it's the responsibility to, to um, you know, to align incentives appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's what you're kind of talking about.
2: There's one little trick that I would say is a starting point, and it's so simple to do. When you're talking about incremental transactions in the quarter, you're usually using language like cost per.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: When you're talking about customer long-term value, You're usually talking about investment. You're saying, I can invest so much, particularly on the front end of a long-term customer journey. I can do things that like create content, which in and of itself doesn't have an ROI. Very little high quality content has a click here to apply button at the bottom of it, right? You're trying to differentiate as a thought leader. And so you can start to actually change the language from cost to investment. And when you do that, It opens other doors. It gets you out of, you know, sort of annual uh, reporting out to the street cycle and more into a growth conversation, which is what the CEO and the CFO talk about, you know, when they're together having a glass of wine at the end of a long day.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a, uh, a paradigm shift in how we talk about it. And sometimes simple language, mm-hmm. uh, you move from cost to value, right? <laughs> cost per versus LTV, which is value generation, right? There's a cost that goes into building that value. Oh. And you've got to make a mathematical argument that the value you're generating is more than the cost that you put into it. Yeah. But the point being is that you're positioning it in a way that's all about long-term um, and it moves away from the
2: short termism that you, that you mentioned before. Yeah, if you think about it, you know, you you, you build a two hundred million dollar factory, you're going to amortize that over the next twenty years. You lease a retail location, you're probably going to be there for ten years. We need to move the mindset in advertising from targeting and harvesting to cultivating, building, understanding investment upfront yields great dividends downstream. And I think we know that at an enterprise level, but we forget it at a media level. Yeah. And we need to unite those two.
0: And it is it is hard. I mean, it it requires constant cultivation of those metrics of KPIs. And, and also, you know, I think you can't just assume that overnight you're going to delete all the short-term KPIs and move consistently to a long-term approach. I think a lot of marketers that we see are doing this sort of side by side um, and and making those comparisons now so that they can prepare themselves for that for that inevitable shift.
1: Yeah. So um, let me ask you this, Lou. So there there was a a study that was put out. And I think you talked about this at Brave New Worlds by NewsGuard that cited that uh, that no news is bad news. And I'd I'd love to hear some of the findings of that report back to the topic of the the responsibility, both the the moral imperative, obviously the business case we talked about, right, lower cost, unduplicated reach, which I think is uh, up to the news organizations to prove, right, that there is unduplicated reach because that's obviously a very compelling argument. But back to this notion of let's talk a little bit about that moral imperative and how that investment uh, is important to, to all of us.
2: The study that you're referring to is that um, the source of the news a brand appears in is more important than content around the ad. And that was really interesting finding a key finding from the study is that brands should increase their advertising on credible news. The results show that brands that broadly block news by operating off the narrow allow lists or aggressive keyword blocking systems are leaving money in the table. Uh, Joshua Lowcock, who you know runs uh, media buying at UM, has a great quote about that, and if I remember correctly, it is now clear that it makes good business sense for brands to support journalism of trustworthy publishers to drive better business results." And so you know again, it's been empirically proven that the concerns that have driven marketers away from news should not concern them. But that message hasn't gotten out widely enough, and so other studies have been done. I know that uh, Publisys did a similar study um, that came up with very similar results. Uh, but the message isn't the message isn't hitting, unfortunately, and, and we need to continue to sort of uh, evangelize it.
0: So I think it's interesting that it, the finding was so tied to the content; it was tied to the, the source more so than the content itself. Um, But it still feels like there's a role for marketers to play to support good, credible journalism. Don't you? I mean, I think you've quoted Edward Wong past, you know, where you put your advertising dollars can enhance or hinder our path forward. So, you know, tell us more about, you know, even though that finding sort of suggests it it's it's about the source, you know, I think it is still a responsibility and, and there's still a lot of responsibility in the marketers to support, you know, good quality journalism.
2: Yeah, and it's actually something that was written down in 1787, and it was written down by the framers of the Constitution, and it's the number one item in the Bill of Rights. The only profession called out in the Constitution of the United States is journalism and their unique role in keeping the electorate honest. There's a reason that the framers of this document said that, because they knew that transparency and accountability were vital to the electorate. And, you know, there's a lot of temptation there, as we see today, to recast the truth. I remember uh, early in the previous administration, um, a woman named Kellyanne Conway standing in the White House lawn and explaining something that the previous president had done. And her quote was that, well, the president was using alternative facts. And seven years ago, when I heard that, I was, what does that mean? What are, where are, I was Googling alternative facts. I'm like, I didn't know what that meant. And, you know, now look at how we become indoctrinated to the fact that facts are on a continuum. The framers of the Constitution got it right, but we're getting it wrong now. And implicit in what the framers said was that the modalities, the financial modalities that allowed journalism to thrive in 1787. Need to endure. So part of that is subscriptions. And, you know, there was some subscription business in those days, but the vast majority of financial support that publications got was through advertising. It looked very different then. It was, you know, often handwritten, it was, you know, very slogan esque. Uh, But nevertheless, advertisers were paying the bills um, for the publications that would cover. Um, what was going on in the nation's capital and, and the state capitals, et cetera. And that model worked for a very, very long time up until, you know, really this century um, it was on a growth trajectory and then it started to decline dramatically. And so I think marketers need to step back. And I think there's a couple of things that they need to do. First of all, I think they should review their ESG portfolio and say is news the next frontiers quality news journalism, the next frontier. I think they should say, what is our policy about advertising and news and who is setting it? Because odds are it's being set by the media team, not the enterprise or corporate communications team or the CEO herself or whomever it might be. Uh, And I think they should say, okay, let's also look at our employees, our shareholders and our customers. Let's understand how they think about us supporting news. Let's get some knowledge about that because too much of what's keeping marketers out of news today is opinion, and I've been in some of those opinion fests. You yeah. Know, and it's, unfortunately, it's, it's fear driven. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's fear driven. It's, it's, it's and you know, it's you know, it, it's fact free in many cases, or in some cases. And again, this is the the, the flip side about how you leverage your agency resource but not necessarily outsourced to your agency resource. A lot of times agencies are like, you know what? I don't want to get in trouble with a client. Let's just block news because every time um, somebody sees something, and I've lived through this, um, a board member sees something, they send an email to the CEO, and the next thing you know, the CEO is contacting the media person saying, why are we doing this? You know, And I've lived through that. And nobody wants that trauma. So it's safer but you know, do you know your agency is doing it? Have you had a conversation with the agency? Did you endorse it? Have you mentioned to the rest of your internal stakeholders, the CFO, the line of business president, the risk committee, the governance committee? Because frankly, I think there's a risk in not being in news going all the way back to 1787 and adding in your, your customer expectations, your employee expectations, your shareholder expectations. I think they want you to support news. And I think you've taken that part of the equation away and you're just on a risk mitigation strategy when you actually should be looking at it as an opportunity.
1: Yeah, you've swung too far in that risk mi- mitigation direction, right? And there's and I think it what's an important takeaway for the audience is it's 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 controllable. Right. Through the use of private exchange, direct relationships with the, the top publishers, careful policing and in optimization of your inclusion lists. Right. And then obviously the ad extension modalities that you want to shut down because you don't know where your ads are going to be sent just to, to hit those reach goals, those kind of simplified KPIs. Right. Um, yeah. So I, so I think there's a mechanism for controlling it. And managing it appropriately.
0: But I think beyond what you described, Brett, I think there's also a key role to play around, you know, gaining buy-in and support from across the organization and, and the key stakeholders and setting those expectations. What I just heard you say, Lou, is as it relates to avoiding the fear and the and that, that risk mitigation, it's about setting the expectation that this is part of our plan, this is part of our strategy, and that's how we need to go forward so that everyone's bought in and, and aligned around that goal.
2: Allison, you're so right about that. You know, when you run a a brand safety and suitability capability, you have to read out to the management team. And, you know, here are the things that we put in place. Here's how the vendors were doing business with SCORE. And then you get to the third part of that conversation is how are you going to deliver growth when you're often shutting down vendors? And so right now is the time to say, okay, we know 2024, our number one objective is growth. And I think that's for every single company out there. And, you know, news delivers tremendous growth. There are some legacy risks that we talked about in the past, but those have largely been um, uh, debunked and we have capabilities to, to, as Brett just listed, you know, very succinctly to ensure that we're safe. We can work with companies to mitigate bias and uh, reliability uh, based on third party independent verification Advantis Media does that. Talk to me later if you want to find out how. Uh, But there's a real way to ensure that you don't increase the risk when you actually open up a very big opportunity for growth. And that's what everybody's thirsting right now. How do I grow my business? How do I reach new audiences? How do we get the word out there? Um, And again, when you when you connect that with the growing demand for news that we're projecting over the next 15 months, it's kind of a no brainer.
1: Yeah. And I think we should end on a quote that uh, you've brought up a couple of times that really resonated with me. And it was it was Edwin Wong, Mm -hmm. SVP at Vox Media. uh, And he said, where you put your advertising dollars can enhance or hinder our path forward to me that really resonates because I think that ties into the moral responsibilities of, of that brands have, right. The societal responsibilities that we all have, we all pay taxes. Um, and, and, you know, there's the business case that you've really elaborated in and talked about this entire episode that is incredibly compelling. Uh, it's, it's unduplicated, it's inexpensive, uh, and there's ways to mitigate some of the risks that they're most concerned about. And I think, uh, uh, it's on all of us to, as an industry to kind of promote the value of this. And, and thank you for being on the show. This was a, a terrific, sort of an inspiring conversation, Lou, as always.
2: Thank you, Brett. And thank you, And I appreciate you quoting our good friend Edwin Wong. I'll close on a quote um, as well. And it comes from a gentleman named Joseph Pulitzer, which if you've heard of the Pulitzer Prize, you know who he is. Many, many years ago, he said, our republic and its press will rise and fall together. And I think that that's never more true than now. And marketers have a very, very big position and a very big role to play in the outcome of that. And I I hope they will choose wisely. So thank you for the opportunity to speak to both of you today. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Lou. Thanks, Lou.